0: How joy it is to sing uh, praises of our amazing Redeemer, our Lord, our Rock, our Redeemer. We get to look at the way that He has rescued us, the way that He listens to our prayers, the way that He loves us so faithfully. We get to stare at that in our text this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, Daniel 9 is where we are. Daniel 9. So go ahead and turn with me to Daniel 9. As you're turning there, we are in the middle of the prophetic section of Daniel. The first half of the book of Daniel is narrative, its stories. Many of them you are familiar with, Daniel and the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace, things like that. That's the narrative portion. Now we are in the prophetic portion where these are prophecies about future events, future to Daniel. Many of them, future to Daniel, past to us. Uh, Some of them, like we will see even this morning, future to us as well. And whenever we come to prophecy, we have to stop and ask the question, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to my life? And I had a conversation with somebody this last week, and they were saying how encouraged they were by the book of Daniel in the prophetic section because they were expecting all these prophecies to just kind of be uh, timelines. Here's the person, here's what they did, here's what's happening, here's the history, and then we move on and we're done. But the reality is, if that's all we do when we look at prophecy, if we just try to figure out what is it saying and then we move on, we've missed the transformation that's supposed to come from the Word of God. Yes, there's information, but information should lead to transformation. And without transformation, we are not truly understanding what it is that God wants us to understand. And so this morning is no different. We're in the middle of probably one of the greatest prophecies in the entire Bible. Daniel chapter 9 in his 70th week. And so what we are going to do this morning is see these two sections in this uh, portion of Scripture. And I pray that by the time we're done, a very confusing section in God's Word may be a little bit less confusing, a little bit more clarified. And Lord willing, it will be transformative to you and to me today. Let's read these verses. We are in Daniel 9, verse 20, all the way through the end of the chapter, and in these verses we'll see two life-altering realities that give us hope today. Two life-altering realities that give us hope today. After Daniel had prayed, verse 20, he writes, Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before Yahweh my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, touched me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Then he made me understand and spoke with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the word was issued. So I've come to tell you, because you are highly esteemed, so understand the message and gain understanding in what has appeared. Seventy weeks have been determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the Holy of Holies. So you are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off And have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will make sacrifice and grain offerings to cease. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Father, we come to this portion of Daniel, which is such a profound portion of prophecy. And as we see it, as we read it, there might be some confusion to it. There will be explanation that needs to take place. But God, I pray that this morning there would be clarity. That even if we don't know the ins and outs, if we we don't know the specific details, there are things that we can still clearly see, clearly identify, and clearly be transformed because of these realities. So, Father, be our guide this morning. May we glory In your word. What a joy it is. What a privilege to open your word. You spoke these words, you recorded them for us through Daniel, and you preserve them for thousands of years so that we can read them this morning and hear you speak to us. And when you speak, we want to be like Samuel, who said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So give us ears to hear, and Holy Spirit, open our eyes to build wonderful things from your law. We want to know you more. We cannot understand without you granting us the gift of illumination. So give us grace this morning, undeserved favor. We have done nothing to deserve it. We are not good enough to earn you giving us understanding. We ask and we plead on the basis of your compassion to give us mercy this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. These two sections, you can clearly see them, uh, verses 20 through 23 and then 24 through 27. These two sections give us two staggering realities, life-altering realities that give us hope. The first is this, verses 20 through 23. Number one, God hears and answers the prayers of his cherished children. Number one, life-altering reality that gives us hope is that God hears But he doesn't just hear, he hears and responds. He hears and he answers the prayers of his cherished children. You remember, we have studied the last two Sundays, Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, the prayer of confession, the prayer of repentance, the prayer of saying, God, we have sinned against you as a people. And we are pleading with you to restore us back to our city in Jerusalem, back to our land. We are exiled because of our sin. We deserve it. This is the consequence. And now, God, we're asking you to give us mercy and restore us. And then the answer to that is verses 24 through 27 with this 70th week, the 70 weeks of Daniel. But in Daniel 9, we can be so eager to jump to the 70 weeks that we ignore verses 20 through 27, this very instructive interlude between Daniel's prayer and Gabriel's answer. We're prone to dismiss these verses in just a sentence or two so that we can bury ourselves in this prophetic section in verses 24 through 27. But the reality is, Daniel actually spends as much ink recording Gabriel's arrival and response as he does the actual prophecy that Gabriel gives. So we would do well to pay attention. That's why I want to stare at this for the majority of our time this morning. You can notice in verse 20, Daniel writes, While I was speaking and praying, As Daniel's prayer went up, God's word was already coming down. The answer was coming from God while Daniel was still praying. Before he had even finished praying, God was responding. God was answering. Daniel says, I was confessing my sin. Yes, the sin of my people Israel as well, but I was confessing my sin. Remember, Daniel is an older man. He's probably in his 80s at this point. And he says, I was confessing my sin. That gives me both encouragement and discouragement. Encouragement that perfection is not possible in this life. Discouragement that I'm going to struggle with sin throughout the entirety of my life. But notice an 80-year-old man, one of the godliest men here that's in the book, writing the book, is saying, I'm still struggling with sin. Brothers and sisters, that is going to be a fight. And as I always tell people, don't steal heaven's joys from heaven. One of the reasons that heaven is going to be so amazing is because it will be impossible for us to sin there. Finally, the fight with sin is gone. That's what we've always wanted. That's what we've been praying for. And finally, we'll get it one day, but not now. So fight. Fight knowing that there's a day coming in heaven when that fight will be done. Daniel prays. He prays, I think probably because of Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. It's your iniquities that have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So if our sin causes a separation and he does not hear, how do we get that channel reopened again that he would listen, that he would hear? And the answer is confession. Sinlessness is not a condition for God to answer our prayer. Confession is that condition. So Daniel says, before I'm asking any request, I'm confessing my sin to you. John Calvin says, quote, this then is our righteousness to confess ourselves guilty in order that God may gratuitously absolve us. Confess yourself guilty. I'm guilty. I have no goodness in myself. I'm not good enough. I'm not moral enough to earn God's favor. Calvin goes on to speak of Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray when Jesus told them, pray, forgive us our debts. And he says, of whom does the Lord wish to use this petition? Surely all of his disciples, we should all be saying, forgive us our debts. And then he says this, if anyone thinks that he has no need of this kind of prayer and this kind of confession of sin, let him depart from the school of Christ and enter into a herd of swine. We all need to be confessing our sin daily, regularly, repenting and turning. Daniel says, I've been confessing my sin and the sin of my people. I've been presenting my supplication before Yahweh on behalf of the holy mountain of my God. On behalf of Jerusalem and the temple mount that's desolate right now. He loves Jerusalem. He cares about the holiness of God in Jerusalem that is desolate at this point. It reminds me of the hymn writer that wrote, speaking of the church, For her, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. That's what Daniel's doing here. His tears are falling. His prayers are ascending for Jerusalem. God loves us and cares about our needs and our petitions. And so if it's a concern to you, it's a concern to God. You remember 1 Peter chapter 5, we can cast our cares on the Lord because he cares for us. And so Daniel says, this is a petition that I have. This is a care that I have. I love the land of Israel. I love my people there. I love Jerusalem and the holy mountain. And God, please allow us to be back there. Verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer. Again, the immediacy of God's response here. God hears and God answers. Psalm 139, verse four, before there's a word on my tongue, you know it all. Before we even speak our prayers to God, he knows them. And so Daniel says, while I was still speaking in prayer, Gabriel shows up. Gabriel, you remember, is one of the two archangels who are named in the Bible. Gabriel and Michael are the two archangels named in the Bible We saw Gabriel earlier in chapter eight, 13 years prior to chapter nine, he showed up and helped Daniel with a prophecy. My Bible says, he touched me in my extreme weariness. Uh, Some of your translations may differ from there. There's a little bit of a, a questionable phrase there. Is it that Gabriel showed up with swiftness and was exhausted? Is it that Daniel was exhausted in his weariness? It's literally just having been wearied with weariness. So we're asking who is the one who's been wearied? I think it refers to Daniel. I was exhausted. I was wearied. And Gabriel, the, the strong man of God, literally the name means God is my strength. or strong one of God. Literally, Gabriel shows up as the strong one to give that amazing answer to Daniel. So Daniel says, you showed up, you helped me. And notice the end of verse 21. You showed up about the time of the evening offering. I love this. This is about 3 p.m. when the evening offering in Jerusalem would have been given. But we're not in Jerusalem in Daniel chapter 9. Babylon has just been taken over by Persia. We're nowhere close to Jerusalem and we haven't been in Jerusalem for about 80 years or for about 68 years. That's going to lead into Daniel being 80 years old. He's 80 years old. The last time he was in Jerusalem, knowing that those sacrifices were happening was probably when he was a teenager. But Daniel still tells his time liturgically. His clock is tied to God's ordinances, even though they don't even exist at this moment. He hadn't been to the evening sacrifices. He had been in Jerusalem as a young teenager. You can take Daniel out of Jerusalem, but you can't take Jerusalem out of Daniel. Dale Ralph Davis writes, at the time of the evening sacrifice, that phrase reveals far more than Daniel's ability to tell time, It's packed with years of yearning and longing and affection for God's ordinances. A passion for the means of grace. True Jerusalem worship. And then he adds this, quote, Sometimes what may seem incidental reveals a soul thirsting after God. He's thirsting after God. He loves the Lord and loves the Lord's ordinances. Verse 22, then Gabriel made me understand and spoke with me and said, oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding at the beginning of your supplication. There it is again, three times we've seen in these verses at the beginning, right when you started speaking the prayer. At the very beginning of your supplications, the word was issued. It reminds me of the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son? He has that uh, speech rehearsed as he's going back to his father. And as he starts to say that speech, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your son. the, The father speaks and cuts him off and says, I have a response for you. That's what God's doing here. As Daniel's bringing his prayer and his supplication for the Lord, God says, I already have a response for you. I already have a response And I've come to tell you, verse 23, because you are, my Bible says, highly esteemed. The word is literally in the plural. That's why it's highly esteemed. It's esteems. You are full of being esteemed. You are highly esteemed. Some of your translations might say um, treasured. You are a treasured one or greatly loved. Some translations say you are greatly loved. The root word there is the root word that's found in the 10 commandments for you shall not covet. That word covet is the root word here. So the noun is literally desired, coveting, craving. You are deeply desired. You are loved and cherished by God himself. That's why this response is coming to you. How amazing for Gabriel to say that Daniel is a treasured one. By the way, you are a treasured one as well. You are loved by God as well. One commentator writes, Daniel was considered to be a very precious treasure to the Lord, as are all of God's children. He loves them greatly. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, God calls you his own treasured possession. He doesn't mean that you're like some thing to him. He means that you are a special treasure and so, of course, he's going to answer you. Of course, he's going to respond to you. Of course, he's going to hear you listen and answer. That's a beautiful reality. And that's why I don't want to move into Daniel's 70 weeks before staring at this section and seeing God hears and answers the prayers of his cherished children. And then Gabriel says this. Very, one last thing in this section. Very interesting to know. Verse 22, he says, He made me understand and he spoke with me saying, oh, Daniel, I have come forth to give you insight and understanding. I've come to give you understanding. And then at the end of verse 23, he says, so now you need to understand and gain understanding from what's given. So I'm coming to give you understanding, but you need to do the work to understand it. Verse 22, you're going to be given understanding. Verse 23, you're going to need to do the work to understand it. In these two verses, we have the beauty of divine sovereignty and human responsibility on display together. I'm going to give you the understanding, but you need to do the work to understand it. Again, Dale Ralph Davis says, quote, the two elements go together. The divine gift is not to be neglected, but exercised so that it can become fruitful This is always the Bible's balance. The divine gift is not meant to stifle human effort, but to stimulate human initiative. The gifts of God are not excuses for sloth, but demands for sweat. God's whole purpose in giving divine discernment is to activate human diligence. Giving insight and understanding is his privilege Pondering the word and discerning the vision is our responsibility. So, brothers and sisters, don't ever let the sovereignty of God keep you from praying and acting. Daniel knows the 70 years of Jeremiah's prophecy of Israel being in exile. Those 70 years are almost over. He knows that God promised Israel's going to go back into their land after 70 years. But that does not keep Daniel from acting. And this is what I want to show you. Turn back to Ezra, chapter 1. Ezra, chapter 1. Old Testament after 2 Chronicles. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy that we're going to come to in Daniel 9. Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia in order to complete the word of the Lord from the mouth of Jeremiah, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he had a proclamation passed throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So everyone who remains at whatever place he may sojourn, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. Notice how staggering that is. A pagan king saying, I'm going to let God's people go back home because it's God, Yahweh, the personal God of Israel. It's God who's giving them that uh, ability to go back. Now, why would Cyrus ever do that? Why would Cyrus ever allow the people to go back home? Turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45. Turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 45 this section, we've read it a couple times. Start in verse 26 of chapter 44. So Isaiah 45, go back up to chapter 44, verse 26. This is the confirmation of the word of God's servant, the counsel of his messengers that he will complete being the one who says of Jerusalem, she will be inhabited. She will be inhabited. She's not going to be left desolate in the cities of Judah. They will be built again. I will raise her up I will raise up the broken places, the desolate places. I will say to the depths of the sea, be dried up, make the rivers dry. And of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Verse 28, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. This is God saying, he is the one that I'm going to use. All of my good pleasure, he will complete. He's going to do what I'm asking him to do. And he'll say of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Which is exactly what Cyrus said in Ezra chapter 1. Chapter 45 verse 1, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken hold of by his right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of the kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden wealth of secret places, so that you may know it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Remember, Isaiah is writing in the 720s B.C. Daniel's writing in the 530s B.C. So we're talking about 180, 190 years difference. And Josephus tells us something amazing about that prophecy in Isaiah. Josephus says that it was tradition. And we don't know if this is true or not because it's not in the Bible. But Josephus tells us that Daniel, having read Jeremiah and Isaiah, took that prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah 44 and 45 took it to Cyrus and said Cyrus this is God speaking to you and Cyrus read it and said then I'm going to do that notice Daniel could have said well God promised through Jeremiah and God promised through Isaiah that Cyrus is going to let us go home he could have said well let's go home I'm praying for it and I'm hoping that it happens God promised so it's going to happen that, that isn't what Daniel did. Daniel didn't just stay there, lazy, slothful, saying, God's gonna do the work. He promised that he's gonna make it happen. Daniel says, because God promised it's gonna happen, maybe he's gonna use me to make it happen. And so the sovereignty of God does not in any way negate human responsibility. Daniel says, because he promised, maybe I'm the one who's gonna make it happen. So he takes the word of God, he shows it to Cyrus, and Cyrus reads Isaiah 44:45 45, and says, let's send you guys home. It's amazing. The beauty of what Daniel does in showing us not only how to pray, but also showing us how to act, knowing that God's promises will never fail. The first staggering reality from these verses is that God hears and answers the prayers of his cherished children. That should give you hope. That should give us hope that God listens to us. He hears our prayers and he loves to respond. He loves to answer. And he does so with immediacy. The second reality, the second amazing, staggering, life-altering reality from this text that will give us hope in verses 24 through 27 is that God has a perfect plan to bring about salvation and restoration. God has a perfect plan to bring about salvation and restoration. And this gets us into verses 24 through 27, the 70 weeks that are decreed, a very famous passage in Daniel, a very famous passage, famous prophecy in the Bible, but a very difficult one, a very challenging one. Joyce Baldwin says, the last four verses of Daniel 9 might present the most difficult texts in the book. Stephen Miller, Stephen Miller says, Daniel 9, 24 through 27 are four of the most controversial verses in the Bible, Another commentator says, this is one of the grandest prophetic passages, and yet if there ever was an exegetical crux in the whole Bible, this is it. John Calvin, you you know John Calvin, he says, this passage has been variously treated and so distracted and torn to pieces by various opinions of interpreters that it might be considered nearly useless on account of its obscurity. No, he doesn't think it's useless, but he says there are so many different opinions on this passage that it might be pointless to even try to figure out which one's true. J.A. Montgomery is perhaps the most colorful on this when he writes, quote, the history of the exegesis of the 70 weeks of Daniel is the dismal swamp of the Old Testament. Even in the 300s A.D., St. Jerome said that there were nine interpretations that he had read regarding Daniel nine and probably a lot more. It's brief, it's four verses, it's kind of obscure. There's so many questions. What are the weeks, 70 weeks? What are the weeks? What are the decreed desolations? What's the firm covenant? Who makes it? What's the abomination of desolation? What What are we to do with this? And there are parts of the Bible that absolutely give us pause, uh, where we do what Job did. I I put my hand on my mouth. I won't even attempt to speak. There are parts that are challenging. What are we to do with these challenging verses? Well, our time is up, and so we're going to pray and move on. That's what we're going to do. No. What I want to do is I want to do two things with this text, because I believe that this passage can be understood. And I want to dive deep into just these four verses next Lord's Day. But for our time this morning, I want to just fly over them. And without diving too deeply into them, I want us to be able to see what can be clearly understood from these verses. Yes, they're difficult. Yes, they're challenging. But I think with a broad brushstroke over the whole thing, We can see and pull out very clearly understandable truths. And that will lead us to transformation. That will lead us to a massive amount of application. So, verse 24. 70 weeks have been determined. Now, before we get into weeks, we're going to do that next week. It's a period of time. Remember, this is, in response, this is one thing we can know very clearly, this is responding to Daniel's prayer. Remember, Daniel said, God, you promised in Jeremiah that after 70 years of exile, we'll go back. We'll go back from Babylon, from Persia. We'll go back into Israel. It's almost 70 years. The clock is running out. When are we going to go back? How is that going to happen? When's it going to happen? You promised it. I know it's going to happen. How are you going to make it happen? This is the answer to that. This is the answer. And notice in this answer, number one, clearly this is the response to Daniel's prayer. Number two, clearly what Gabriel is saying, he's trying to recalibrate what Daniel was thinking. Because Daniel and the people of God thought, you promised we're going to go back to Jerusalem. We're going to get our land back. We're going to build our temple. We're going to have our city. And then we're going to have the kingdom. Then we're going to have peace. And what Gabriel says is, yes, you're going to go back, but that's not the end. You're going to go back, and even in building it, notice what he says. Seventy weeks have been determined for your people, for your holy city. Notice this is your people, Daniel. uh, The Jews, your people, your holy city, Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the holy of holies. We'll talk about all that next week. You are to know, verse 25, and have insight that from the going out of a word or a decree from Cyrus, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So there's going to be a period of time, and then you're going to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. It's going to happen, Daniel, and it will be restored, and it will be rebuilt. Yes, the answer is yes, Daniel. You're going to go back, and it'll be restored. And even there, verse 25, end of verse 25, It's going to be restored during times of distress. So you're still not going to be fully at peace in your land. And we know that, right? Remember Jerusalem was rebuilt. Uh, The walls were being rebuilt by Nehemiah and there was great distress around that, great um, opposition to what Nehemiah was doing. But that's not the end of the prophecy. Verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, so you're back in your land, Daniel. You've got your city. You've got your holy mountain. You've got your temple. But after that, the Messiah will be cut off. You know that Daniel wasn't praying at all about Messiah. Daniel was just asking, when are we going to go back? And the answer is, you're going to go back after these 69 weeks, whatever that is. But after the 62 weeks, the seven plus 62, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the prince, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. So Daniel, please hear. This is what Gabriel is saying. Please hear from God. You're going to go back. You're going to get your temple back. You're going to get your city back. You're going to get your land back. And even when you get your land back, it's going to be in a time of distress. You're not fully at peace, but then it will be destroyed. So Daniel, this isn't the end. The 70 years, once you get back, that's not the end. And its end will come with a flood. There will be war to the very end. Desolations are decreed. And then Gabriel adds this reality. He will make a firm covenant the, the Prince who is to come, with the many for one week. but in the middle of the week he will make sacrifice and grain offerings cease. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete destruction, one that is decreed. It's poured out on the one who makes desolate. So here are the things that we can know. Daniel's praying about, "When are we going to go home?" Gabriel' saying, "You're going to go home, you're going to get your city, you're going to get your land, and you're going to get your temple. It will be rebuilt but then it will be destroyed. So that's not the end, Daniel. Clearly, the end of the exile will not usher in any full or final restoration. In the overall context of these verses, they're saying to Israel that the kingdom of God's not going to immediately appear when you get back home. You have to prepare yourself for a long road ahead. So Gabriel's recalibrating Daniel's expectations. Gabriel's also recalibrating Daniel's understanding of what occurred in the exile. He brings in the concept of Messiah. Why? Because the exile did not atone for their sins. The exile was a consequence for their sins, but the exile did not atone for anything. The exile, the consequence of being taken out of Jerusalem and thrust into Babylon and into Persia, that was a punishment for the sin. That was a discipline for the sin. That was a consequence for the sin, but that did not change their hearts. That didn't atone for the sin. It's not like they go back to Jerusalem sinless. No, somebody's going to have to do that work for them because they can't do that themselves. And so Gabriel says, Messiah is going to do that. Messiah is going to do the work of bringing in atonement. Messiah is going to do the work of bringing in everlasting righteousness. There's going to be another person who's going to show up. And that's one of the reasons why this prophecy is so amazing because within a, a period of about five years, we're given a specific prophecy of when Messiah would show up and be crucified. He's going to be cut off. He's going to be destroyed. He's going to have nothing. And he's going to do that because he's the one who does the work to atone. He's the one who does the work. So without even diving into these verses, we're going to do this, Lord willing, next Sunday. But without even diving into these verses, we don't know what the weeks are. What do they represent? We don't know necessarily who's going to give the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We don't know uh, all the prince to come, the desolations. We don't know those things. But even without knowing those things, this is is why I want us to stop here before diving in so deep that we miss, without even knowing those specific realities, you can still understand absolutely what this text is trying to say. You don't need to go any deeper than what we've we've done today to understand Gabriel is responding to Daniel's requests, and he's giving him a very thorough answer and he's recalibrating Daniel's understanding. So, How does that understanding apply to us? I think it has massive implications. And I want to give you five in closing. Five just staggering implications from this. Implications for our lives. Implications for who we are called to be based off of these 70 weeks. This prophecy. Number one, God never forgets his people, even in their sin. God never forgets his people, even in their sin. God had not cast off Israel. He's dealing with them. He's holding them. He's responding to them. And he has a plan for their future. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you're here this morning and you feel trapped in sin. You wonder if sin is even worth repenting of, throwing off. Because you wonder if God is so far removed from you Because of your sin, that he doesn't see, he doesn't care, and it's a lost cause. My friends, this passage is telling you that Israel, in exile, because of their sin, God says, I've not abandoned you. And if he didn't abandon them, pre-cross, he will not abandon you and me when he slaughtered his son in your place. God has not cast you aside. He has not forgotten you, even in the midst of your sin. He is the father chasing down the prodigal son saying, please come home. Please come home. Number two, second reality from these verses and this prophecy is God always preserves his people, always preserves his people, even in their distress, both in the flow and sometimes in the fury of history. God will always keep his people intact. He preserves his people. He will always preserve his his people, even in their distress. You feel like you're being pressed in on both sides, a trial that you're going through, and you just feel like there's no way you're going to ever be able to breathe again. God says, no, I will be with you. I'm going to preserve you. Nebuchadnezzar tried to kill him. Right? The people of God, I'm going to eradicate them. Cyrus is saying, mm, maybe we should get rid of them. All these people groups come and exile them and take them out and say, let's just kill them all. Let's make them our slaves and make them our captives. and Eradicate them from the face of the earth. And God says, you can't do that with my people. And he says that over you and me today as well. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Number three, a third reality from these verses is that God has a plan for history and it's perfectly on schedule. God has a plan for history and it's perfectly on schedule. 70 weeks decreed, seven weeks, 62 weeks, 70th week. He, he has a plan. He has a timeline. He has history in his hands. God wanted Daniel to know and us through Daniel to know that 77, 70 weeks are required to complete everything that God intends to do. And what he intends to do is going to be more marvelous than we could possibly comprehend. What God is going to do in and through Israel is going to be way better than anything Daniel expected. God has a perfect plan for history. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, the Lord God appointed a set time for the coming of his son into the world. Nothing was left to chance. Infinite wisdom dictated the hour which the Messiah would be born and the moment at which he would be cut off. His advent and his work are the highest point of the purpose of God, the hinge of all of human history, the center of divine providence, the crowning of the edifice of grace, and therefore peculiar care watched over every single detail. And it was well that Christ came in what the scriptures calls the fullness of time. Note again that the Lord told his people somewhat darkly, but still with a fair measure of clearness when the Messiah would come. I love that. God tells his people through this prophecy, somewhat darkly, there's some obscurity to it, but with an overall measure of clearness, exactly when Messiah would come. So, if God does that with a grand scale of all of human history, God's doing that with your life. There's something that you're going through right now, that you feel like it's not on schedule. God, I have my schedule, and your schedule's not matching my time frame. I wanted it to go here. I want it to be now. I want it to be then. And God, you're not on my time frame. Maybe something that feels out of sync with what you think the schedule should be. It's not out of sync with God's schedule. God has a perfect time frame for everything that's going to happen. And it's running exactly the way that he wants it to. We say a lot that God is never late. Amen and amen. But he's hardly ever early. He's going to allow you to go through what you're going to go through. Notice even this prophecy. He's going to allow Israel to go through a lot longer periods of history than they thought they were going to go through to get their kingdom. The fourth reality is that evil will lose and Messiah will win. Evil will lose and Messiah will win. That's what we're told here. Evil will lose. Finally, ultimately, evil will lose and Messiah will win. God has a plan to bring about the salvation of his people and the judgment of his enemies, and it centers on the person and work of Jesus. So as one commentator says, quote, all of the calculations have already been made. The time has already been set for the last tyrant who would assault God's kingdom and crush God's people to be terminated. Somehow that injects a ground floor assurance into the souls of God's servants and makes it possible for them to walk on with a certain godly fearlessness. So what is the message of Daniel 9? Something like this. You and I are called to a long obedience. God's people will be sustained even in distressing times. And the great hater of God's people sits in the Lord's crosshairs with the date of his demise clearly marked on God's calendar. Evil's going to lose. I believe that these verses speak to the Antichrist, the, the prince who is to come. He's not going to last. His end is decreed, and Messiah will win. The one who is cut off will ultimately reign and rule forever. Finally, number five, we are deeply loved, just like Daniel, treasured and cherished like Daniel, because the Messiah is cut off. We are deeply loved because, notice how verse 24, verse 26 says that the Messiah, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Messiah will be destroyed. He will be killed. He will have nothing. We are deeply loved because that took place. And that took place. The Messiah was cut off because we are loved. For God so loved the world that he gave Messiah. So that Messiah would be cut off so that you and I don't have to be cut off. We are so deeply loved. And now we know that that love that God has for us. Nothing can separate us from that love because of what Christ did on the cross. Because Messiah died. So... When you go through something in life, you feel like, I can't get out of this. I'm stuck. It's not on my time frame. It's not happening according to my schedule. It's so easy to then turn to, it must be because God doesn't like me that much. I mean, he knows what I think. He knows my attitudes. He he knows my sin. He knows what I've done. He just must not like me that much. He's out to get me. Daniel's prophecy of these 70 weeks promises us it's not because God doesn't like you. You are a treasured possession of Christ. If you are in the family of God this morning, you are a treasured son or daughter. It's not because he doesn't like you. It's because he loves you and he's allowing you to go through something so that you would love him more and that he could prove his love to you all the more. If you were here this morning and you know the love of Christ and you have turned from sin, and you've trusted in the Savior, you know these realities and we walk in sanctification because of these realities. If you're here this morning, and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never even heard of Jesus. You don't even understand what we're talking about. I know you're jumping right into the middle of a weird verse in Daniel 9. I hope that you would know the clarity of the good news, what we'd call the gospel, the beauty of Christ, that though we are sinners, and we all know we've done things that are wrong, we all have guilty consciences, though we are sinners deserving of punishment, just like the people of Israel, God has said over you, I love you and I don't want you to be punished. So I will be punished in your place. Turn from sin. Trust in me. Cling to me. We're never good enough to earn God's favor. That's why it's all of grace. Jesus rose, the grave and death are conquered. Jesus is the one who has redeemed our broken lives. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that redemption, I would plead with you, don't leave until you talk to somebody next to you and ask them, how can I know for sure the redemption that is possible in Christ? How can I know for sure where I'm gonna go when I die? How can I know for sure where I will spend all of eternity? Because the beauty of Daniel's 70 weeks is that he points us to the one that does all the work for us and declares over us, it is finished. Father, we thank you so much for these amazing verses. And I pray that even as we confirm these realities, as we sing, that you by your grace would stir in us affections for Messiah, the one who was yet to come for Daniel, but the one who came already, who lived a perfect sinless life, who died in our place, taking all of our sin, taking all of our shame, and the one to whom now we cry we plead we make our petitions for knowing that he ever lives to make intercession for us so even as we sing knowing that you hear and we sing knowing that you have a perfect plan a perfect timeline and time frame for everything that's going to happen in all of human history we want to trust you more we want to love you more and we want to glory in who you are for us in Christ we pray it all in his name amen